Hello, and welcome to episode 6 of Is It Shane Ritchie? The Adventures of a Wrestling Journeyman. My name is Carl Stewart, and I'd just like to say thank you for taking the time to listen today, whoever and wherever you are. Thank you again for taking the time to share our posts on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you also for all your amazing feedback from the last few episodes. Please do keep sending that feedback to us as it really does help us to improve and grow. We are now available on a number of different podcasting platforms, including Spotify and various others. And you can find links to all of the various places you can now find us through our page at www.conroypod.vze.com That's www.conroypod.vze.com You can also download the episodes from there, and the page does contain something of a rogues gallery of various people who've either appeared on the show or who we've mentioned in various anecdotes and stories. Please do check that page out and let us know what you think via our social media pages, which you can also find linked from there. If you enjoy this show, please do continue to like, share, retweet and mention us to others and we will continue to add more 100% original content on each and every episode. This week we are taking a break from the guest interviews, but I'm pleased to say that I recently sat down and recorded another four plus hours of incredible stories and discussion with our recent guest Spinner McKenzie. The first part of that new material with Spinner will be coming up very soon, so do keep a lookout on the social media pages for details of that. I will also be recording a few more new interviews very soon, some with people who may be familiar to you, and some with others who won't be so familiar, but who also have some absolutely incredible stories to tell. Please do give those episodes a chance too, even if you may not have heard of the person telling those stories you won't regret it. One interview coming up very soon, in fact, will be with a man we've touched upon quite a lot on this show, namely Mr. John Short, the legendary MC of many, many years' experience. John will be sitting down with us this coming week to talk about his incredible career in professional wrestling and his experiences in wrestling, which go back all the way to the late 1950s. So that really will be one to absolutely savour. More about that very soon. So, it's now time for the first of our regular features. Short Stories Yes, it's time, once again, for Short Stories. For anyone listening for the first time, 
This section of the show focuses on my experiences in wrestling with the wonderfully eccentric MC of many years' experience, Mr. John Short. Again, if you are new to the show, for a more comprehensive background on who John is, please do go back and listen to episode 1, as I gave a little bit more of an overview of John in that first episode. Over the years, I've made hundreds and hundreds of trips in the car with John, across the length and breadth of Britain, and have worked on hundreds and hundreds of shows with him. He's someone I actually think the world of, even though you might not necessarily think so from listening to these stories. Some of my favourite times in wrestling have involved John in some way. So, as I've mentioned on a number of occasions before, I tell these stories not to knock the guy. Well, maybe a little bit. But more to celebrate and share his wonderful eccentricities with others. I should point out that he is a friend of both myself and my family, and has been for a long time. He also has absolutely no problem with me telling these stories. Just to make that clear. This week I'll be talking about some of the experiences I've had over the years of going out postering with John, i.e. travelling round in the car and asking various establishments to put up our show posters a few weeks ahead of time. Going postering with John is an experience to say the least. Besides his madcap driving and parking antics constantly getting us into awkward situations, Trying to get him to hurry up and get more posters out in the limited time we always had available was a constant challenge. My approach to asking a shopkeeper to put up a poster, for example, might be Hi, do you put up posters for local events, please? Whilst showing them a copy of the poster. Not rude or rushed in any way, but it led to... A quick exchange with the shopkeeper, and I would then either put up the poster, or not, depending on the person in question, and move on to the next shop, to try and get as many posters out as possible in the time we had. John, meanwhile, would go into a shop and begin this long spiel, starting with... Good afternoon, I represent the people putting on this production in the town, blah, blah, blah. And would take four times as long over every shop he went into as anyone else. That would be frustrating enough in itself, but when he's also slowing things down because he's looking in every shop we pass for bloody Orkney fudge, over a few days it can become, shall we say, a little taxing. On one particular trip in 2008, we were outpostering for two shows, one in Stirling and one in Perth. So we were covering those places and all the little towns and villages surrounding and between them. On the first day, we were running slightly late, so when we arrived at our first stop, a tiny little place called St Maddow's on the outskirts of Perth, I was still getting my postering bag organised. We pulled up at the village shops and having already organised John's bag, he said that he would go off and explore further up the road, 
where there was a community centre and see if there was anywhere else up there we could poster. While I finished getting everything ready and I could then do the shop that we were parked outside. I said okay and about a minute after John trundled off up the road I was ready to get out and start postering. Or at least I would have been ready if John hadn't gone off and locked me in the sodding car. Despite trying everything I could think of to unlock the doors, nothing was working, so there was no way of me getting out. With us already running late, I wasn't best pleased at this, but had no option but to just sit there and wait for John to come back. Which he did, a full 20 minutes later. He came over, unlocked the car, and the conversation went something like this. Did they take posters in there? I've no idea, John. Oh, I thought you were going to do this one. I would have done if you hadn't locked me in the car for the last 20 minutes, you stupid old prick. Well, you should have been able to just open the door from the inside and get out. Well, I couldn't. I've had to sit here for 20 minutes waiting for you to come back. John then realised he'd accidentally put the child locks on when he locked the car which was why I hadn't been able to get out. Suitably chastised, he then apologised and I set about postering the shop. I would be remiss at this point if I didn't mention another car-locking-related story that I've just remembered, which also took place in Scotland, but this time involved me and Nathan Reynolds. I was on my way to a show somewhere in Fife with Nathan, Only the two of us were in the car on this occasion, and as we went down the road it started absolutely pelting it down with rain. Nathan's front passenger window was broken at the time. It was closed and it was fine, but it just couldn't be opened without the window falling out of place and not being able to close properly again without getting out the car and resetting it. As we went along the road, the rain got even worse to the point where we couldn't even see the road signs indicating the turn we needed to take properly, as the windscreen wipers just couldn't clear the water away quickly enough to see. Forgetting, and genuinely forgetting, that the window was broken and that I wasn't supposed to open it, I wound it down to try and read the sign. It was then I remembered about the window being broken and apologised to Nathan, who pulled over onto the side of the road and got out to fix the window. Once he'd reset the window, which was only a two-minute job to be fair, despite feeling guilty for having accidentally messed with the window in the first place, I'd spotted an opportunity for mischief, as I was prone to do. While Nathan was making his way back around to the driver's side, I pressed the lock down and locked the car from the inside, and despite his protests, wouldn't let him back in the car. The rain was still absolutely teeming down at this point, so by the time I finally let him back in, he looked like the winner of the 2007 Dundee Miss Wet T-shirt competition. When he got back in the car, I said sorry to him, and to be fair, he took it really well. He probably still thinks I messed with the window deliberately so I could lock him out in the pouring rain, but it was a genuine mistake. Sorry, mate. I just couldn't resist. Anyway, back to John. 
Whether it was me calling him a stupid old prick, or whether he was just a complete mental case behind the wheel, John proceeded to spend the next few days seemingly trying to kill us, just by randomly driving out in front of vans, lorries, and other cars going full pelt down the road. Justifying this by saying that he had right of way. Besides the fact that he didn't have right of way at all, even if he did, that wouldn't really help us much when we were dead. And I promptly explained that to him. Not that it made any difference whatsoever. It's not just the car that John has put in front of moving vehicles, though. On one trip in 2012, he seemed determined to walk in front of anything moving above 10 miles an hour. It really is terrifying sometimes. Through this and the expired food he's constantly eating, I'm really not sure how he's actually made it to the age he is. I'm surprised he hasn't been used in the fight against coronavirus as someone who could absorb everything and wipe it from the face of the earth without so much as a blemish on his health. But anyway. On that same postering trip in 2012, the mechanism on John's car boot was broken in some way, which meant that every time he propped it up so he could put something in or take something out, the boot would fall down on the back of his head, normally when he was about halfway through a sentence. It was like the scene in Faulty Towers where Basil's trying to put the moose's head up on the wall, but with much more swearing. Needless to say that after a few instances of this occurring, John was not only fed up of the boot falling on his head, but of my laughter as well. I laughed a lot on that trip. I'd noticed many of John's little eccentricities way before this, but this trip really brought home how John may be the biggest undiagnosed case of obsessive-compulsive disorder on Earth. As I've mentioned before, John's wristwatch has steadily been losing more and more time over several years. But rather than get it fixed or buy a new one, he instead puts sticky labels on the face of the watch and writes on them how many hours and minutes the watch is wrong by, sticking a new label over the top whenever he has to change that. As we went around postering various places on that trip in 2012, I noticed that every time we stopped, John was writing things down on a piece of paper, which he then put back in the car door. In the end, curiosity got the better of me, and I asked him what he was doing. He told me that it was just for his records and diary. After he told me this, I started looking and seeing what he was writing. He wrote down what time we left in the morning, what time we stopped anywhere, how long we stopped for, what time we arrived, the name of the hotel we'd stayed at, its location, how many miles we'd done in between different places, what food he bought while we were there, where he bought each individual item of food from, how much it cost, what time he bought it, and so on. Quite what he intends to do with this information in the long term, I'm not sure. But I do have a strange vision of him stood at Speaker's Corner in London one day, spending ten hours just reeling off things like, On Tuesday the 24th of September 1992, I stopped at Maud's Fudge Emporium on Argyle Street 4 far at exactly 10.46am. There, I bought one portion of Orkney Fudge, 
one portion of Mars bar fudge, and a Scottish breakfast. These items came to a total of £9.68, which I paid for with a £10 note. I subsequently received 32 pence change, which was made up of one 20 pence piece, two 5 pence pieces, and two 1 penny pieces. I then went to their toilet for a leak, where I produced 1.3 ounces of fluid, which was dark yellow in colour. But anyway, back to the postering. Another feature of that particular trip was the sound of the gears in John's car making that horrendous grinding noise. Not once on the entire trip did it change smoothly from one gear to the next. The gears weren't the only part of the car which became an issue over the next few days, as John's CD player subsequently got jammed shut and wouldn't play or even eject the CD that was jammed in there, which happened to be mine. Now, of course he blamed my brand new, pristine condition, blemish-free CD for this. I did put forward the idea that perhaps the one he'd just taken out with smudge marks all over it, as well as something sticky and Christ knows what else, might have been the real culprit. But, as per usual, John was having none of it. After putting out some posters in the shops open at night, and the takeaways, we dropped in to see an old friend in Forfa called Joe Harkin. I've known Joe and his family for years now, and they were always very kind to us, often putting us up in their caravan, which led to a number of adventures which I'm sure I'll get onto at some point soon on the show. We then headed across to the hotel in Perth to get our heads down ahead of what promised to be a very long day's poster in the following day. For those who have never had the pleasure of sharing a room with John, he sleeps with both an eye mask and earplugs, making him practically dead to the world until something disturbs him in some way. He also has the loudest alarm clock in the known universe, which I, and probably the rest of the hotel, discovered at 7 o'clock the following morning. The only person in the hotel who couldn't hear it, unfortunately, was John, despite it going off at approximately 14 million decibels, two inches away from his head. After a minute or two of migraine-inducing torture, the bloody thing still wasn't showing any sign of stopping either, so I had to get up and try and figure out how to turn it off, all the while having to lean over the bed and delicately balance myself so as not to trip and fall into bed with John. Just to be clear, I had no intention of finding out how many logs were in the fire on that particular late autumn morning. After exhausting every option on the clock, which might have switched it off, I finally managed to get the damn thing to stop by simply dropping it on the floor and booting it halfway across the room. A bit extreme, maybe, but frankly I was worried people might think there was an air raid going on. John woke up about ten minutes later and was baffled that his alarm clock hadn't gone off. I calmly explained to him that actually it had, and asked him how the bloody hell he hadn't heard it, since there were probably people back in Bristol who had. After breakfast, we set off for our broth, where, along with a couple of other places, we were postering that day. We had a good, busy, productive day all in all, although we did, of course, have to take a detour so that John could have a look round the theatre. After we'd finished for the day, we headed along to Carnoustie, 
where we were going to try and catch the takeaways and meet a couple of the lads for a drink, one of whom hadn't had the best of days. I was reliably informed later on that my conversation with John, while I was on the phone getting directions to the pub from the wrestler in question, went some way towards brightening his day. We were parked up on Carnoustie High Street, and I phoned to get him to direct us as we went along, letting me know which turning we needed to take off the main road, etc. And the exchange between John and me went something like this. OK, John, if you start driving, I'll get to give me directions, and I'll tell you where to go. John, if you start driving... I heard you the first time. I'm waiting for you to tell me where. Start driving and then I'll tell you where to go as we go along the road. Which way? This way. It's no good you telling me this way. I can't see where you're pointing. I'm not pointing anywhere. Just drive the way we're already fucking going. I could hear the two wrestlers we were meeting laughing on the other end of the phone. And that made me start laughing as well. Which I don't think John appreciated all that much. Mind you, I don't think anyone in Carnoustie appreciated John all that much either that night, as he drove through the very well-lit town centre with his full beams on the whole time, getting flashed and beeped at by various aggrieved motorists, and, as usual, being completely oblivious as to why. The following day we set about postering Forfer, Kiri Muir, and the surrounding areas, including a village we'd spotted on our travels the previous day called Freakham. Then, after we'd finished there, the plan was to head back to Carnoustie to catch the shops that had been closed by the time we got there the previous night. The whole time we'd been up in Scotland on this trip, there had been warnings of extremely heavy rain being on its way. Apart from a small shower in our broth, we'd managed to avoid any adverse weather up to this point. But on the final day, it caught up with us big time. From the moment we left the hotel in the morning, to the time we finished postering the final shop in Carnoustie in the early evening, it absolutely pissed it down the entire day, and didn't let up once. Some of the roads we drove along during the day were more like rivers, and I wondered whether we were even going to make it through one particular road, as we drove very, very slowly through. We made it eventually, but it was touch and go for a while. Quite a few of the other cars just turned back and didn't even attempt it. Despite his boot being half full of food he'd bought in the previous few days, including Mars bar fudge, tiffin fudge, Scottish breakfasts and Christ knows what else, the one thing John hadn't been able to find while we'd been up there was Orkney fudge. This became very much a feature of the final day's postering, as he was starting to get quite obsessive and annoying about it. Every time we stopped somewhere to poster, if I got a side of the road where there was a shop that might potentially sell Orkney fudge, he would remind me over and over again to look, even asking if he could take that side instead. After a day of trudging round in the pissing rain, getting absolutely soaked through, this was starting to grate on me, so I had to remind him that we were actually there to put posters out rather than look for sodding Orkney fudge. He settled down about it for a bit after that, although he did manage to further endear himself to me by sliding a block of complimentary tickets over the roof of the car before I was ready for them 
or even looking, then asking if I was ready for them as they landed in a massive puddle. Twat. By the time we got to Freakham, though, John was in full fudge detection mode again. There weren't many shops in Freakham, and I took the side of the road with the co-op. We'd just got out of the car, and I started up the road, before I heard John shout something I couldn't quite make out. So I went back to where he was standing to see what he was on about. Stupidly, I thought he might have been saying something useful about the shops we were about to poster. But instead, he was just reminding me to look for bloody Orkney fudge again. Adding, It must be Orkney fudge, not vanilla fudge or anything else. Yes, I fucking know what it is. You've been talking about it for three days. Just get on with the job and stop messing about in a pissing rain, which had now turned to hail. Thankfully, John finally managed to get his Orkney fudge in the very last shop we posted on Carnoustie High Street, so I was spared having to listen to him moaning about it all the way home as well. The shows we were postering for on this occasion were quite an experience as well, but that's another story for another time. So that was short stories for this week. Next week, I'll be talking about some of the strange experiences I've had with John and various raffles throughout the years. More about that next week. We now have some absolutely shameless plugs for you. But stay tuned, because coming up next, I'll be talking about the infamous night of the Melksham Riot. Don't go away. I know you're going to dig this. Seconds Away, It's Night Time is run by former wrestler Stevie Knight and his longtime associate Richard Youngie Young, who have both been friends of mine for a long time now. The show features interviews with many of the top stars from the glory days of British wrestling, as well as with some modern day wrestlers, and is really, really well worth a listen. You can find them at www.twitter.com forward slash secondsawaypod. And the other podcast I'd like to give a shout to at this time is Because WCW, run by the twisted genius Dean Ayas and his co-host Liam Happ. Their show focuses on reviewing WCW pay-per-views and TV shows, and is also really, really well worth a listen to. You can find them at www.twitter.com forward slash Because WCW. Definitely do check out those two fantastic shows. You will absolutely love them. I recently enjoyed recording an episode of Because WCW with my longtime friend Dean A.S. and his co-host Liam Happ. And they were even nice enough to edit out a few C-bombs that I accidentally dropped. Well... I accidentally dropped the first one, the others were completely intentional, but we'll leave that. Do go and check that episode out, and indeed their entire back catalogue of episodes at www.becausewcw.podbean.com So, without further ado, it's now time for... Quote of the Week! I say! Yes, it's Quote of the Week. And this week's quote of the week is... I know a secret way out of here. 
Last week, I told the story of one of our early adventures in the wonderful little town of Melksham in Wiltshire. As I've mentioned before, Melksham was a bit of a throwback to the times where wrestling crowds could regularly become, shall we say, a bit tasty. A lot of that was down to how well CSF promoter Stu Nat, otherwise known as the Eliminator, kept up kayfabe there. He did an absolutely amazing job of keeping things as real as possible, way past the time where everyone and his dog would quite happily admit wrestling was bent. As I said before, pints in the face, being spat at, being burnt with cigarette lighters, people trying to cut you with pen knives, and various other things were a regular staple of being a villain in Melksham, or at least one that they actually cared about. The crowd in Melksham was split into two main sections really. There was the normal wrestling fans, mostly kids, although a few adults as well. And then there was the Barmy Army. The Barmy Army was a massive group of Natty's mates, and they were more like a bunch of football hooligans than wrestling fans, although they did get into the wrestling as well. They'd basically followed Natty around the shows since he first got into wrestling, and they were known, at times, to become quite volatile. They were also, shall we say, somewhat innovative with their chants and insults, ranging from, Bailey's gonna get you, which subsequently became, Bailey's already got you, to, when's your baby due, when's your baby due, you ate your boyfriend, you ate your boyfriend, and lots and lots of others, as well as the constant shout of, you fat bastard, you fat bastard, you ate all the pies. Their chants of, we are Natty's Barmy Army, rang out whenever he was in the ring, and sometimes when he wasn't in the ring too, depending on how bored they were by the match they were watching. Kevin O'Neill was a wrestler from the Midlands who made a couple of appearances in CSF who had long hair and a beard, making him look somewhat like Jesus. The Barmy were quick to pick up on this, and immediately started chants of Jesus, Jesus. Within a couple of minutes though, this had quickly deteriorated, as loud chants of Jesus is a wanker, Jesus is a wanker, la 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 la, la 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 la, rang out through the entire assembly hall. They would also bring various inflatables with them to shows, including blow-up dolls, a life-size inflatable football referee that they kept throwing at Pete Collins during his match the one time, an inflatable zebra, a beach ball, and, most incredibly of all, a massive inflatable dinghy, complete with a ten-year-old fan, who had the best view in the house as they hoisted him up in the air for the entire show. They also used to bring air horns and would routinely use them to interrupt heel promos and as backing for chants and songs. You could tell when the Barmy were bored by a match though because there would either be complete silence or sometimes they'd do things just to entertain themselves. Like singing, let's all have a disco, let's all have a disco, la 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 la, la 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 la, while dancing about in their little section of the hall which, conveniently enough, was next to the bar. 
On the night I'm talking about this week, though, in February 2002, they were very definitely into what was going on. Especially in the match second from last on the card, involving hometown boy, the eliminator Stu Nat, and the three challengers for his CSF All-Nations title, in a winner-stays-on gauntlet-style match. The first two matches came and went, and it was the third of the three which was the one that would cause all the problems. Following the interference of me and a couple of others, the Highlander, Colin Mackay, subsequently became the new CSF All-Nations champion. Seeing Natty lose his title in dubious circumstances, and then seeing two of his long-time allies, Gideon and Max Carnage, turn on him and attack him after the match, the Barmy Army weren't happy, to say the least, and that's when things started to get a bit tasty. It's fair to say their protest didn't exactly take the form of a peaceful Mahatma Gandhi-style protest. Instead, two groups of them left the assembly hall, split and went off to two of the local pubs, where they spread the word about Natty having been done. They then came back and brought back about a hundred more people from the pubs, who, along with the rest of the people left at the hall, surrounded the place and wouldn't let us leave. The dressing rooms in Melksham were near the back door of the hall, which they proceeded to start trying to kick down. They then started throwing stones and trying to break the windows above the dressing room. Then they started lighting things on fire and putting them through the door's letterbox, all the time shouting threats and obscenities at us. The whole time this was going on, we were getting messages relayed to us that there were people out there that wanted to harm every single one of us individually. We didn't doubt it either as we could hear the threats from outside the whole time. These people just didn't seem to be calming down at all and we were starting to wonder exactly how this was going to end. At one point, someone, I'm not entirely sure who, went out and told the assembled mob that we had gone and that there was no one in the dressing rooms anymore. But that didn't work and they continued to try and break the door down and break the windows etc. We then turned the lights out in an attempt to make it look like there wasn't anyone in there, and that they were closing up for the night. We must have been sat there in the dark for somewhere between about 5 and 10 minutes, and I think after a while it was starting to work. The shouts from outside had died down a little bit, and I think they were starting to believe that we actually had slipped out and made a run for it, and that there was indeed nobody left in the dressing rooms. But... Trust a room full of wrestlers to fucking balls that up. Big time. Even though the atmosphere was pretty intense, and let's be clear on this, we'd all drawn some heat prior to this, especially in Melksham, but this was something we'd never experienced before. It was a pretty scary experience all in all, but in times of adversity, humour can quite often pull you through. And despite this being a genuinely heavy situation, we were actually having a good bit of banter between us, sat in that dressing room siege, which made things a bit more tolerable and temporarily distracting us from thinking about what might happen if the natives, in numbers, became even more determined in their efforts to get to us. Things eventually went quiet and we thought we might finally be in the clear 
Unfortunately, though, we hadn't banked on one of the wrestlers in the room ruining that. Nick, or Gideon to give him his wrestling name, has one of the broadest Bristolian accents this side of John Short. And certain accents for me can always make even the most innocuous of things incredibly funny. So, sitting in that dark dressing room, in now near silence, we were finally able to at least start thinking of a plan to get us all out of there. All of a sudden, however, Nick, in hushed tones, piped up with the line, I know a secret way out of here. The delivery and tone of which just made us absolutely burst out laughing quite loudly, which then alerted the mob outside to the fact that we were in fact still in the dressing room and we subsequently had to stay there for quite a while longer. As it turned out, Nick's supposed secret way out of the assembly hall actually pretty much just involved walking out of the main door, where a lot of the angry mob was still congregated. Needless to say, we didn't take that particular escape route in the end. The way he delivered the line, though, I had visions of us having to dig a Colditz-style escape tunnel and burrowing our way out to safer ground. Throughout the entire time, no one had wanted to call the police to come and sort it out, because we knew that that would potentially affect future shows in Melksham. We did, however, need some form of resolution, which eventually came when Natty went out to talk to them all, promising that he would take care of it all personally, and sort us all out himself at the next show. Kayfabe, brother. Kayfabe. He finally managed to get them all to disperse after about an hour or so, but the fun wasn't finished there. Seemingly needing to find some form of expression for the anger they hadn't been able to take out on us in the end, a group of them subsequently went on a rampage through the town, which included smashing the windows of an estate agent by the assembly hall and setting that on fire, trying and pretty much succeeding in turning over Pete Collins's car, which I later found out wasn't even his but had been borrowed from his father-in-law, and Kevin O'Neill only knows what else they got up to after that. The stupid thing in all of that was the fact that Pete hadn't even been involved in the angle. He was on straight after that match in the main event against Tiger Steel. It was an absolutely crazy night, and by the time we finally got the all clear to leave, as soon as we ventured outside we had a good look around for any remaining natives with pitchforks and torches, then pretty much just ran to the Regency Hotel, which we were actually staying in this time. Episode 5 story reference there for anyone who hasn't heard it. The Regency was about a five minute walk from the Assembly Hall, but I think we probably made it that night in about a minute. I don't think I've ever run so fast in my life. I don't think I'll ever forget the night of the Melksham riot, and I do consider it, strange as it might sound, A bit of a badge of honour, considering that this was 2002 and long past the time of crowds rioting over the result of a wrestling match. I certainly don't take solo credit for it, as it was very much a combination of both the interference and subsequent match result, and the heel turn of Natty's long-time allies, Gideon and Carnage. It certainly wasn't the only unusual experience we had in Melksham over the years either, not by a long way. In fact, the very next show there featured the first appearance in CSF for the former WWF star Jake the Snake Roberts, 
who subsequently managed to get himself locked in the toilet for about 20 minutes, with his match fast approaching, when the door handle broke off from the outside and fell on the floor. His incredibly angry shouts from within soon turned to, I'll huff and I'll puff and I'll blow this door down, and get the camera brother, this one's going to be trophy sized. With some assistance, we finally managed to liberate the bedraggled, drunk, and high former WWF star from the clutches of the evil toilet. What a way to make a first impression. Although, if only his efforts in the ring that night had matched his efforts to escape from the crapper. Anyway. To give you a little bit of a sample of what the Melksham atmosphere was like, here is an audio clip from a different show at Melksham Assembly Hall in 2004, where me, my twin brother and manager, Dan the Man Conroy, were about to square off in a handicap match with Stevie Knight. This wasn't by any means the loudest they ever got, but it does give a reasonable snapshot of the kind of atmosphere we loved working in front of so much in Melksham.
Melksham specifically, but CSF generally, was notable over the years for having lots and lots of unique characters. And I'll certainly be talking more about some of those unique characters in the coming weeks. But as a one-off experience, the Night of the Riot is something I'll always look back on and, strange as it may seem, smile about. It was certainly a unique snapshot of the very unique place Melksham was to us. So, that was Quote of the Week for this week. Prompted by a discussion with my recent guest, Spinner McKenzie, mental health in wrestling is something that really should be talked about more. And with that in mind, I would like to hear from anybody either formerly or presently involved in wrestling, or who has been around wrestling in some way, who would be interested in giving me a few moments of their time for a a short interview to discuss their views on the subject. I think there are a number of issues that we could get into around mental health in wrestling. The aim for all of this is to eventually put together a full podcast with various people's takes on those issues in the hope that we can kind of bring some discussion out into the open and hopefully effect something positive going forward in some way. If you are interested in taking part in this, this is going to be a long-term project you can contact me through private messages on either Facebook or Twitter, and I'd be very, very grateful for your input. Thank you. So, as we approach the end of another show, it's now time for our final feature. Song of the Week Yes, it's Song of the Week. And since I couldn't find any songs referencing postering or Orkney Fudge, I thought it was only appropriate that this week's Song of the Week is I Predict a Riot by the Kaiser Chiefs. So here it is. i
that's just about it again for this week. Thank you all very, very much for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do spread the good word and continue to help us grow by sharing and recommending us to others. You can find all the necessary information on our website, which again is www.conroypod.vze.com. Please do keep an eye out on our social media pages for updates about upcoming episodes. So until next time, this is Carl Stewart signing off and saying goodbye and thank you. Thank you.